All right, no judgment zone, but how many of you were at a wedding like that this summer where it was really long? No one's gonna put their hands up. Okay, I'll ask this question. How many of you were like at three or more weddings this summer? Put your hands up. All right, anybody at four or more weddings? Five or more weddings? Six or more weddings? Bro, you were at seven or more, six weddings? Wow, we'll pray for you. That's amazing. That's, <laughs> what patience. So we're talking about the subject of marriage and just think of the thousands of weddings that happened throughout the course of this summer, just in the city of Indianapolis alone. And then just think of this, think of the variety of ideas as to what marriage is really all about. It's crazy, which is one of the reasons why we're gonna spend the next four weeks talking about the marriage mystery. Take your Bible, let's go over to Genesis chapter two. And our scripture reading today is in verses 18 through 25. If you're new here at College Park, we're glad that you've come. One of the things that we do every week is we take the Bible, we look at it carefully, see what God's word has to say for us because we believe that God speaks to us through his word. So what we're reading right now is not just a book, but it's rather the very words of God. And so we need to be thankful for what we have. These are the authoritative words from a sovereign creator. Here's what God says in Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, very important verse. Therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Aren't you thankful for it? Thanks be to God for it. So when I say the word marriage, what other words come to your mind when I say that word marriage? For some of you, the word marriage immediately evokes words like ceremony, vows, wedding, maybe a long one, right? Or for others of you, the word marriage immediately creates words in your mind like commitment, vows, lifelong. Others of you, the word marriage is connected to the idea of intimacy and sexuality and oneness. Those are all good terms, great terms. There's others of you though that when I say the word marriage, you've got another dictionary. Your words are words like hard painful, disappointing. For some of you, it's even another layer, the word abuse and divorce and really, really hard. 
So we come at marriage from all sorts of perspectives. If you're single, maybe you saw the sermon this morning, and honestly, the word that comes up in your heart is annoying. Because you've been in church for a long time, and it feels like you're like an exile because you're not married. And true, oftentimes church can feel like it's just for married people, and we don't want that to be the case at College Park. Sometimes that happens, and I'm going to hope that this series isn't like that for you. Or, or maybe for a single, the, the idea of marriage is maybe a, a wish that hasn't yet been fulfilled. Maybe you're an engaged couple, and the idea of marriage for you is excited and enthusiastic, and your friends think, you're naive, <laughs> right? So the, the point is this, that no matter where you are in life, whether you've been married just for a little time or a long time, whether you're not married, whether you were married and are not now, we all have to acknowledge this. The word marriage has lots of words that are associated with it. So that's the challenge and the opportunity that exists with marriage. Marriage is both beautiful and marriage is at times really hard. It can be the best and it can also bring out the worst. And so over the next four weeks, we're gonna unpack what does it mean for this word marriage to be so important and for that matter, what does it mean when the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter five? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Paul quotes Genesis 2, the passage I just read. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna unpack what does it mean that marriage is a mystery? When you put a man and a woman in a covenantal relationship, and when they say words like, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, you're setting a situation up that's going to be really interesting. You know, I've said to premarital counseling couples before, you'll never know how selfish you are until you get married. So be encouraged. <laughs> But it's true, it's 100% true. And yet at the same time, there's also something glorious because marriage, it, it teaches you something that you don't learn without understanding God's design for life, at least for those of you who've covenanted in the holy ordinance of marriage. So we're gonna explore what does it mean that marriage is a mystery. So if you're not married, here's what I want you to know. I hope this series will help you understand the biblical message of marriage. I hope you understand what marriage says. I hope you'll see the regular connections as it relates to the gospel. I hope that you'll be motivated to be a godly, righteous person because of what you hear about the gospel in the context of the marriage. And if you, a uh, concept of, of marriage rather, and if you're longing for and hoping someday that you'll be married, my hope is that this series will help prepare you for that day, that you'll be motivated to be godly and righteous and pursue the right kind of person in light of what this model is that we're going to look about or look at. Secondly, if you, if you have a good marriage, I hope that you'll be able to celebrate God's grace to you and you'll not be content with the former years of good marriage 
but instead be motivated that in whatever season you're in that you'll make an even better marriage. And if you're here, and my guess is there's a number, you have a struggling marriage right now, I want you to use this series as a way to take some really good steps. In some cases, maybe to get some help, maybe to pull some people in, maybe to take some, some next steps, and we have a number of them from books and resources, even a class that we're starting next Sunday. Uh, the fact of the matter is, there's no perfect marriage, but there's some marriages that you feel like it's, it's really starting to decline, and I just wanna encourage you that God has hope for you, and there's power in the gospel to see your marriage turn around. And so my hope and prayer is that this series will help maybe reinvigorate some hope in your heart. So today we're looking at the foundations of marriage, what's underneath this concept. Next week, we'll look at the roles of husband and wife. Then we're going to talk about sexuality on week three. And then we'll end talking about God's grace as we consider what are some next steps. So this morning, we're going to look at three foundational truths about marriage. And what's interesting is the book of Genesis is the first place that we learn about marriage. We see the entire creation account in Genesis chapter 1, and then Genesis 2 is a further examination of the creation of um, Adam and Eve, and also this idea of one flesh appears in Genesis chapter 2, which really is the essence and the definition of marriage. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall be come one flesh was a text that is so important. Jesus quoted it when talking about the problem of divorce. Paul quoted it when talking to the church at Ephesus, the one that I just read to you about this mystery. And as well, Paul quoted the same baseline foundational verse to the church at Corinth when they had really ungodly views about human sexuality. So this text is really important and it's foundational. And there's three particular truths I want to highlight. Number one is this, that marriage is God's idea. In other words, God is the designer of marriage. It was his idea, it was part of his creative design. It's the culmination of all that God was doing in the six days of creation. In fact, if you were to look at the creation account, and we don't have time to fully examine it today, you would see that the days of creation feature pairs that are meant to complement one another. For example, you have light and darkness. You have day and night. You have the heavens above, and you have the earth below. You have the sea and the land with plants and trees. You have the moon and the sun. You have fish and birds. You have creeping things and animals. So God has this pattern that is just showing up in the context of the created order, but the highlight of the entire creation is the final complementary pair, and that final complementary pair is man and woman, male and female. Look at verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. The text says this, so God created man in his own image, and that means mankind. In the image of God, he created he him. Male and female, he created them. So here we have male and female in the context of the complementary nature of the very created order. And then God gives them a command. Look at verse 28 of chapter one. God blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion. In other words, God 
places upon them his image. He places upon man and woman the image of God, which is different than any other quality that anything else in creation has. And what God, in effect, says to them is, you do in your world what I've done in mine, and in doing so, you'll show the world what I'm like. You create, you exhibit oneness. In the complementary nature of male and female, in your union, you will create life, and I want you to do in the garden what I've done across the entire universe. And in so doing, their relationship and the act of subduing the earth and the expression of what it means to be male and female will say something powerful about God. Friends, this is one of the reasons that I believe exclusively in the institution of marriage between a man and a woman. Or to state it more specifically, why I reject the notion of marriage between two people who are of the same sex. The reason is because the foundation of marriage is God's good design to show something to the world between male and female You have to understand that God's design is what's underneath marriage, not love. This is a very different perspective than our modern culture. Love is not the foundation of marriage. Love is very important for marriage, don't get me wrong. But love is not the ultimate foundation. There's another foundation underneath the emotion of love, underneath the affection of love, underneath the feelings of love, underneath what I love. Underneath that is something even more important, more basic, more foundational, and it is God's design. And God designed marriage between a man and a woman as a part of his beautiful design to communicate something amazing to the world and to image to the world what he is like. And that includes subduing the earth, the creation of new life, and in the complementary nature of male and female, there is something powerful that it says about the triune Godhead. So it was God's idea to create complementary humans. It was God's idea to make them different but similar. It was God's idea to embed within their image of him and within their uniqueness that they could have the capacity to create new life in the midst of that complementary union such that God says something significant about what he is and who who he is as God. So Ray Ortland says this, marriage is not a human invention, it is a divine revelation. It's a divine revelation. So hear me. Every marriage is a revelation. Your marriage says something. The question is whether it says something positive or whether it says something negative. Your marriage says something to your kids. They, they, they hear what's going on, they see what's going on, they're getting an image. In fact, some of you, that's why this series is a little hard because you grew up in a home where that image was just really not helpful. And so you're trying to, to uncouple and undo just damage because of wrong understandings of what you've seen in the past. This is also hopeful because if your marriage is something that honors the Lord and it shows the beautiful convergence of male and female with the presence of Jesus in the middle of that home, it makes a powerful statement to the world. And so while marriage is being assaulted at lots of levels, if you're a Christian, I want to help you understand today there's an unprecedented opportunity for Christ-honoring, self 
um, I want to say self-defeating, but I mean self-sacrificing. That's what I mean. Self-sacrificing kind of marriages in our culture say something incredibly powerful and incredibly even more rare in our world today. Marriage is a divine institution where God's creation plan is fulfilled. We see this in Genesis 1. We also see it in Genesis 2. It's no wonder that the devil wants to destroy marriage. It's no wonder that the false teachers in 1 Timothy 4, they forbid marriage. So if you've got a good marriage, you need to know that the enemy hates your marriage because your marriage says something powerful about God and who he is. I also want to be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that everything in the creation, everything that is best relates to marriage. I'm not inferring that singleness is not a part of God's plan. It certainly is, and the New Testament clearly exalts singleness as that which is valuable, and in some cases ought to be pursued at the neglect of marriage. Or in other cases, might not be your first choice, but you find the opportunities and the fullness and the freedom of what singleness is and what it means for you. But here's the thing. You can't understand singleness if you don't understand biblical marriage. Because biblical marriage, from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, helps us to understand the fully ordered reality of the created order. Second chapter of Genesis now gives us further detail about this relationship between a man and a woman, and here's what it says. Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this, this is the signature text. This one flesh is what really defines what marriage is all about. And if you don't understand this one flesh design, if you don't understand that marriage is meant to point to something other than you and your happiness, that marriage is the environment in which love is felt, expressed, and given, but at the end of the day, there's something more than just those things, then two things will happen. If you don't understand the biblical view, two things will happen. First, the culture and the norms of our society will start to shape your view of marriage more than God's perspective on marriage. If you don't regularly rehearse what is God's design and why is marriage in the world and what does marriage mean, you'll be shaped by the cultural forces that are constantly coming at you. In fact, Tim and Kathy Keller have written a great book called The Meaning of Marriage. And what they did in that book is they traced the cultural shift in Western culture for how marriage is viewed. This is really important because we live in the midst of this culture and sometimes we don't even realize what has happened. They say this, that in the 18th and 19th centuries, the view of marriage changed. They write, instead of finding meaning in marriage through self-denial, through giving up one's freedom and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was now redefined, listen carefully, this is so important, as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. The Kellers are identifying here something that is really, really critical, and I see it all the time. I feel it. I feel it. They say marriage used to be a public institution for the common good and not a private arrangement for the satisfaction of individuals. In other words, marriage used to be about us 
and now it's about me. That is enormously important. And the reason is that some people go into marriage thinking that this marriage is going to meet all of my needs. This is the relationship that is finally going to make me whole. And in our culture, the idea of self-expression, just being who you need to be or figuring out who you are, is not only the predominant ethic for today, our heroes of today are those who do this in our secular culture. But when you bring that into your marriage, here's the problem. This is one of the most important things I'm gonna say maybe in all four weeks. If you make your satisfaction and your fulfillment and your happiness the foundation of what you're looking for in your marriage, you will put crushing burdens on your spouse. If you get married in order so that you can finally be happy, you will never be happy. If you try and fill the God-sized hole in your heart with a spouse, you will justify all sorts of wrong thinking and wrong behaviors. You'll tolerate things that you shouldn't tolerate. You'll allow things that you shouldn't allow. And what's more, you'll never find the true fulfillment that you need. And here's the thing, the reality is only Jesus can meet the deep needs in your heart. And the only people who really know how to love other people well are those who know how they've been loved well by Jesus. Which is why, friends, your relationship with Christ is critical and vital in order for a marriage to be what God intends for it to be. So some of you, this whole series isn't gonna be about marriage, it's gonna be about you coming to the foundational reality that you need help more deeply than your marriage. You need help in terms of who you are because you're bringing you in all of your brokenness without a savior into the context of marriage and you have no help to do it on your own. But the hope is, is that if you know Christ and you know how his grace has taken care of your sin and your love of him then extends to a spouse, then there's incredible hope. This is also one of the reasons why teenagers or single adults, this is one of the reasons why the Bible warns and commands that you not be united to somebody who isn't a believer. I mean, you can find all sorts of reasons to justify it and, well, I love them and, and maybe this will be, you know, my mission field. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, you do that, you're not only violating the command of Scripture, but you're also making a huge mistake because you have two people who are coming at life from two very, very, very different perspectives. The fact of the matter is that underneath this marriage relationship is the essence of the gospel. For some of you singles, this makes you deeply nervous about getting married. You're perpetually maybe looking for the perfect spouse. But what I want you to know is that while you need to use wisdom, the real challenge isn't the dating field. The real challenge is not whether you're compatible. The real challenge is are we of one mind and heart when it comes to who Jesus is and where we're headed together spiritually? You get that right, and you got hope to fix everything else. Get that wrong, and it's really, really hard. So if that one flesh design is not part of your thinking, the cultural forces will inform how you think about marriage. That's the first problem. The second problem is this, is that if one flesh isn't part of your understanding of God's design, and you're not allowing the Bible to inform your view of marriage, then hope goes out the window. 
You can have all sorts of counseling. You can read all sorts of books, hear all sorts of sermons, but if at the end of the day, you and your spouse don't want to be like Jesus, marriage is gonna be really tough. But the fact of the matter is, there's incredible hope if you're a follower of Jesus because marriage is as hard and as simple as this. We both simply have to be like Jesus to our spouse. Husbands, listen to me. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives. Hear this, as Christ loved the church. I mean, you gotta die. You gotta be like Jesus. And when you're like, she's not being fair, you gotta remind yourself what the cross was. That was fair? And both the beauty and the trauma of marriage is that it surfaces what the sacrifice is that was the cross and what it means for us to embrace that on a regular basis. For some of you, the critical reason why your marriage is in trouble right now is you've begun looking at your spouse instead of looking at the cross. You have a list of, well, if they would do this and they would do that and they would do this and they would do this, and the fact of the matter is Jesus didn't treat you like that for a second. Instead, he loved you despite yourself, and my hope that part of this series will help husbands and wives start leaning into one another, not because of what they're gonna get out of the marriage, but because of what they know they've been given in Christ. So that's God's design. Here's the second thing. Marriage is not only God's design, not only his idea, but marriage is also good. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is the theme verse that covers all of verse 18 all the way down to verse 25. It is not good that man should be alone. So if you have more of an introverted personality, you are energized by being alone, you know that there are limits to that. Like, it's not like for weeks alone, like a little bit alone. The fact of the matter is what the Bible is saying here is that human beings were made for relationship. In fact, in Genesis 1, verse 26, he says, let us, God says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. So even the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit operate in divine communion and God creates a longing for the kind of relationship and companionship that the Father, Son, and Spirit have, and we see this as being embedded even into the creation account. I wanna be clear, relationships are not limited only to marriage. If you're single, you can have really good friends who know you, that help you walk and follow Jesus. If you're married, you could still have really good friends. That's all true. You should live in community because you're human. But here's the difference. It's only in marriage between a man and a woman where that relationship goes to the depths of level that are unique of any other relationship. Where all boundaries, emotions, and finances, and physical realities, all of those boundaries are broken down and there's ultimate oneness. And when you understand that, then you can apply that to other relationships, knowing that those relationships have boundaries that are, un, that are very dissimilar to the nature of what marriage is. So marriage isn't the only community, but marriage is an essential example of what community is. So when the Bible says that it's not good that man be alone, we're gonna solve that problem as we see in the text here because God's gonna take Adam on a little bit of a, an exercise where he's gonna bring all of the animals in front of him and he's gonna ask Adam to name them. Verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field 
Every bird of the heavens were brought to the man to see what he would call them. Can you imagine this? This, this last week I was at the fair and I saw an alpaca. I just found myself laughing at it, like almost sarcastically. Can you imagine these animals being brought in front of Adam and he's naming them a giraffe? Imagine seeing a giraffe for the first time. Just crazy. See, an alpaca, this alpaca at the fair had its entire midsection shaved, and so it had all the hair on the back end and the front end. It looked crazy. Look, maybe it won the award. I don't know, but it looked funny. Maybe it won the humor award. Funniest alpaca in the state of Indiana. But the fact is, is that the Bible says that God brought all these animals and Adam could not find a helper. Now, some of you women immediately are reacting negatively to the word helper. I get it. But here's the thing. Do you know that God is called our helper? The word helper here doesn't denigrate what Adam is looking for, but rather it means this. Adam needs a companion. He needs a companion like himself. He needs a friend and an ally who he can absolutely depend upon. And so in a moment, we'll see this woman is brought to him, and while they will have different roles, she is every much an equal image bearer as what he is. And granted, she will be made from him, but being made from him doesn't mean she's less than him. That's just the way that God wants to help you understand that their essence is by its very nature oneness. And so when marriage is described as one flesh, God is simply bringing together what he's already designed. Eve is not inferior to Adam, but rather Adam looks at the whole creation and he doesn't have one who could walk alongside him. So men and women are different. They have unique roles. That doesn't make men superior to women. It doesn't make women superior to men. The problem is, though, is that we often assess things that are different in terms of superiority. We have to be careful to not do that, especially as it relates to marriage. So in verse 21, we learn that um, God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He takes a rib out of him, closes it up, and then verse 22, it says the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and then brought her to the man. This must have been a moment. You can imagine Adam sees God bringing, and he's like, wait a minute, that's not an animal. What is that? And I gotta, if I was Adam, I'd be like, so where are you even hiding that for... <laughs> Like, where's that been, right? And so he brings, and you think I'm reading into something, look at verse 23, look at he says, the man said, this at last, it's a relief. He's thrilled because here comes this bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So this is a relief. And listen, when marriage reflects this kind of God-centered companionship, there is something relieving about it that I don't have to walk alone. I can have somebody who's not like me, who can help me, and who I can help, and together we're actually better. Some of you are in the context of your marriage, you've been married, I don't know, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 25 years, maybe longer than that. And maybe throughout the course of time, you've begun to think, I wish my spouse was a little more like me. If they would do just this like this, and, and rather than valuing the differences, rather than laughing at the differences, rather than celebrating the differences, those differences make you angry. And the reason, friend, they make you angry is because you think you've cornered the market on what life really needs to be like. And what's happened is that in God's kindness, he's used marriage to surface once again how incredibly and unfortunately self-centered we really are. I'd imagine there's a number of people hearing this message need to be reminded that marriage is good. 
It's good. It's really good. It's not good to be alone. God says, I'm going to make a helper for him. I'm going to bring him this woman. Maybe you grew up in a home where the marriage wasn't good. It's a really bad example. I need you to hear from the Bible. No, marriage is good. Maybe you're starting in a new marriage. And I, my challenge to you would be this. Break the cycle of bad marriages that have been a part of your family's history. Maybe you're married right now and your marriage is in trouble. It's not good. I want to remind you that the tension that you feel between what it should be and what it is is meant to move you towards godliness and repentance. And maybe you just need to own it and say, you know what, we're not working on this like we should. I've let all sorts of other things take priority because those things, honestly, are giving me my fix for what I feel like makes me valuable. My work, my body. Spending all kinds of time at the gym while not spending any time with your spouse. Pouring all sorts of energies into trying to climb the corporate ladder. Meanwhile, your most important relationship is being neglected. Or where you're pouring it into your kids. You, you've traded the affections of your spouse for pouring into your kids, and eventually those kids are going to be gone. And that's how husbands and wives look at one another after 25 years, and their marriages end. Why? Because they didn't invest into their marriage. Instead, they invested into everything else. And I just want you to know your marriage is worth fighting for. It is good. It is the thing that communicates something about God like nothing else. And if you're here today and your marriage is going well, then praise God and keep going through every season of life, through all the difficulties, through the different changes. I mean, just when you think, I've been married now 26 years, and just when I thought I got one part of marriage figured out, life changed. And then, you know, the kids came into the mix, and then it was, you know, elementary school and high school, and, and, and I got that thing down, and now they're left, and I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I mean, it's just crazy. Every season of life is just, just a different scenario that you have to figure out. And just when you think you've got a hold of it, it seems as though God pulls it away. And here's why I think that happens. Because God's more interested in you being the right kind of person than he is in you having a marriage that you can be proud of. So if God's used your marriage to humble you, you ought to thank him. God even used a marriage breakup in order to say you, help you to realize, God, I need you. God can use even painful circumstances to do really good things. So marriage is God's design. This is his idea. Marriage is good. Here's the final thing. Marriage is special. The end of Genesis 2 says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. In other words, there, there needs to be a new home that is created. Family relationships... They, they don't change, like your kids are always your kids, but this marriage is something new. Mom and dad, you gotta remember that. When, that, when, those, when those kids get married, like it's, it's hands off. You, you, you get to be an influencer now. You don't get to have control. Because there's a new marriage, there's a new relationship, and marriage creates this, this, this new intimacy, this new oneness that's reflected in what comes next, that he would hold fast to his wife. So hold fast is covenantal language, and we don't have enough time to talk about the importance of covenant, but can you just acknowledge with me that covenant in our culture is not valued like it should be? We, we break, we, we look at marriage often like it's a contract. If you do these things, then I'll stay faithful, but if you don't do this, I'm out. Because at the end of the day, well, I'm in this thing to be happy. If you don't make me happy, then I'm going to look for the back door. 
And again, that's just part of the cultural air that we're around. What's crazy is that we do have other covenantal relationships that culturally we still value. For example, we still think that the covenant between a mom and a child is sacred. If a mom abandons her child at Target, we'd be like, come on. That's awful. Moms shouldn't do that. Well, it used to be that husbands and wives had the same perspective about the covenant of marriage. And I just want to encourage you, in the context of self-actualization, in the context of my marriage is about me and my wants and my desires, there is a push towards viewing marriage as a limited contractual arrangement designed for my benefits, and when the return on my investments don't weigh appropriately, I'm gonna cut my losses and get out. Now hear me, I'm not suggesting that you should tolerate abuse, stay in a marriage where uh, your, your spouse is doing things that are sinful and wrong. There are steps and everything else that need to be taken. I'm not suggesting that for a moment, but what I am saying is that culturally there is a tidal wave of people who do not understand and do not value what it means to be in covenant. And yet from the beginning, he says, hold fast to his wife. The beauty of marriage is this. We're both broken, but we love each other, and we're not going to quit. We got a lot of junk, but we know Jesus. And Jesus knows our junk. And between Jesus and our junk, we're going to make it. Tweet that. Let's get back to the Bible and they shall be one flesh. Here it is. The basic definition of a biblical marriage is this. Two become one. This is what God is like, three in one, and it points back to how Eve was created out of Adam. To be one flesh means that a husband and wife's life are united together in a way that is unique from all other relationships. They have one story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family. As we'll see in week three, the expression of this is in sexual intimacy. And out of that intimacy, another life is created. And that's why marriage says something so incredible about God, because there is no other relationship on earth that can do that that communicates all of what God intended. So that marriage is not just an institution, it is a revelation, it says something, it's designed to scream about God's beauty and his glory. So no matter what words come to mind when I say the word marriage, I hope that over the next couple of weeks you will add words like marriage is good, Marriage is God's design. Marriage is special because marriage, yes, it is a mystery. And sometimes it's confusing. Yes, sometimes it's hard work. You might wonder how in the world is it ever going to work in our life? But marriage is also glorious. Marriage is meaningful. And marriage, when it is centered on the person and work of Christ, is deeply fulfilling. Marriage, at the end of the day, is worth fighting for. It's worth talking about. It's worth digging into. It's worth reigniting our passion to follow Jesus in our marriage because marriage is a mystery that points to a God who has been glorious and kind and merciful and who wants to tell the world what he's like. And he wants to tell the world what he's like through your relationship as broken people in the context of your marriage. So for the sake of the glory of God and the good of his church in the world, folks, have good, gospel-centered marriages. Let's pray.
Father, we need help because life is full of trials, troubles, and all sorts of pains, and no doubt people hearing this message today have stories and histories and expectations, and, and so Lord, in many respects, what we're talking about is a mess unless you intervene. And so would you help us over these next number of weeks to hear from you, give hope to those who are discouraged today, give hope to those who've had hope before but it didn't work. And Lord, help us to know what it means to follow you and to love you so that marriage can be everything you intend it to be for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.